remain standing. Please turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 10 through 15. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 10 through 15. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, so good to be here with you all uh, in person and, and a special welcome to those streaming online. Uh, if you're new here, my name is uh, Robin Cho. I'm, I serve as the pastor here at West Spencer. So good to have you here. Uh, maybe it's the first or second time. Love to uh, visit with you afterward at the visitor table right near um, uh, the entrance of our church building. And just love to introduce myself to you. Well, let's catch up from where we left off in chapter 8 in our journey through Ecclesiastes. Um, Koheleth, or our preacher king, translated, uh, who we think is, is King Solomon, is pronouncing the statement that we are, at the end of the day, powerless. We're powerless. We can't control the future. We can't predict when our end of life will be. Uh, we can't control how an evil ruler will act. We can't control the outcome of wars. He says we cannot control the wind or anything else under the sun. Even the wicked that seem to prosper are ultimately powerless. And, he's, and as he's been alluding to all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, only God then is in control. Placing your faith and trust in the God who is in complete control. And this plays out as this formulaic phrase, those who fear the Lord is the goal, but can be difficult, of course, in a topsy-turvy fallen world. So at this, it's almost simultaneously he's praising God, he's placing all his trust in the fear of the Lord and, and his God. Simultaneously, he is seeing everything under the sun and is lamenting every day what he sees. The preacher king continues this somewhat dark evaluation of things under the sun, which means this fallen world but he also provides some advice on how to handle things in the midst of such darkness. I, I, I need that. I, I feel like you all need that. Oh God, through your word, help us how to handle things, how to think about things in the midst of such darkness. But before we go on, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would illuminate this text for us and that if I take a wrong detour left or right, God, may the word set us straight and may this word be implanted in our hearts and may it bear much fruit for your glory and for your purposes 
Thank you, Lord, and would you minister to us now? Would you commit heart surgery here uh, through the ministry of your spirit? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to turn there, but let me read from Psalm 73 and bits and portions of it. I think this psalm uh, somewhat summarizes perfectly the overall sentiment of these uh, verses here in Ecclesiastes 8. So Psalm 33, verse 1 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts throughout through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. How does the psalmist respond later towards the end of the Psalm 73? Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Besides you, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. What a wonderful psalm that is. Perhaps you're familiar with some of the words. Maybe towards the end you were saying, okay, I think I, I know this psalm. But I think everybody in this room has had a moment in their life where they were praying and lamenting exactly what the psalmist was saying at the beginning portion of Psalm 73. God, how could these people get away with how they live? They flourish, they prosper, they live, some of them, long lives. And even though they do wickedness and evil, oh, the people tell them, no, you're doing a great job. How long, O oh Lord, do we have to live under this oppressive society or in this fallen world? Maybe all of us here have thought that sometime in your life, maybe even recently, but then you also didn't repeat the words at the end where the psalmist says, but nevertheless, oh, I am with you, and I will consider you, God, my only refuge. This is how we can deal with the topsy-turviness of the world that we live in. And you'll see as we go over this very short passage how Psalm 73 is almost mirroring what Solomon is writing here in Ecclesiastes 8. Now as we journey through this short passage, we'll be helped by dividing this up into, no surprise to you, three headings or three main thoughts that our preacher king is trying to convey. And I'm gonna repeat these as I go along. But the three thoughts or the three headings are, number one, the vanity of the wicked, and that's going to be from verse 10 through 13, the vanity of the wicked. 
Number two, the vanity of fairness, and I'll unpack what, what I mean by that. The vanity of fairness, that's verse 14. And then finally, we'll conclude with verse 15, the value of joy. The vanity of the wicked, the vanity of fairness, and then finally, the value of joy. But I should remind us, and maybe this is you know your first or second time here, he's going to use a word often in this whole book. And that's the Hebrew word hebel for vanity. Vanity, vanity, vanity. You're going to see this throughout. If, you, if you're just coming in the middle of this, the series, you can go back home this week and read uh, the first seven chapters. But he often uses this term vanity. It's, it's not, um, you know, when you look in the mirror and you're like, man, I'm hot stuff today. You know, uh, it's not that kind of vanity. I, I never do that, by the way. Um, but... Uh, vanity in the Hebrew, Havel, is meaninglessness. It's perplexing. Or it could be defined as absurd. Or I like the definition, incomprehensible. Vanity of vanities. And so I just want to just warn you, it's going to come up a lot even in this passage. And how often have we looked and thought about things in our world and just threw up our arms and said, Havel. Havel, absurdity, incomprehensible. It just doesn't make any sense to me. This is absurd. And if you have, then we're in good company with the likes of our author today. And so let's see what advice Solomon gives and his observations. Number one, the vanity of the wicked. Let's read again, verse 10 to 13, the vanity of the wicked. Then I saw the wicked buried they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. Holy place there, some scholars are saying that's probably the synagogue or the place of worship. Then he says, this also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and pro prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. You see, the preacher king continues on his semi-rant, going back in all of chapter 8, about wickedness and evil deeds, including uh, earlier what happens when you're ruled by uh, uh, an ungodly authority figure in their day, kings, and so forth. But now he goes a bit broader about ordinary wicked people who parade themselves in society as upright citizens and individuals, perhaps religious people, but in actuality live very wicked lives. And he notes there in verse 10 the absurdity of the honorable burials such evil people get after their death. You see, people used to go in and out of the holy place, again, the synagogue, the place of worship, but they were lauded and praised even though they were committing these evils in the background or maybe evils in front of everybody plain as day. And to Solomon, that's a vanity. That's incomprehensible. That doesn't make any sense. And he further says to get a burial fit for a noble person, a noble, honorable person. I used to live in Chicago for many years and they just these older, huge cemeteries and some people have a small plot and then some people have these huge tombs and, and all this uh, uh, you know, expensive decoration, et cetera, et cetera. 
And he's saying, Solomon is saying, wait, but that's supposed to be reserved for the godly, honorable, the upright, those who pursued righteousness. But instead, it's backwards in our society, in our life, he's saying. And the evil, the wicked, get such honor. You might walk by and you think, how could this person be revered and honored this way after all that they did? Maybe it's personal against me or maybe against a whole society. He then laments in verse 11 that very often justice is slow to be played out or justice might not ever come. That's, not, that's nothing new to us. We see this all the time. We see this often when criminals get out of trouble because of a clerical error or some strategic moves by their defense lawyers to get the whole case tossed out. And this emboldens others to say, hey, if they're going to get away with it, I'm going to do the same or maybe even worse with the allure of, of getting away with evil. People are fully set to do evil, he's saying, if there is no justice that eventually prevails. Our local history remembers the mob boss uh, Al Capone, and that for years, probably decades, he was getting out of trouble with his lawyers and whatever uh, discrepancies in the law, though he committed, of course, notorious evils against uh, people only to be way later in his life to be tried many, many years later for something about tax evasion. And that's how he got sent to jail. But justice is slow. Justice, when justice is so slow or when evil men live without any repercussions, we, we understand what the author says, vanity of vanities, and that's absurdity and senselessness abounding. Yet verse 12 offers some counter-perspective that should cheer the long-suffering soul, that even though the wicked can prolong his or her life by worldly and cunning means, at the end of the day, those who fear God will prevail in the long run, and of course, for eternity. And as verse 13 says, those that don't fear the Lord, their day of judgment awaits them. They can try to delay this, even with a prosperous life, but they cannot dodge the inevitable. It will not be well with them, as Solomon says. And so if there is no fear of the Lord in you, that's evidence that God has not remade your heart and has transformed your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. A heart that cannot beat for the Lord by his grace and divine intervention is left beating then only for yourself and for this world. But for those that God has called, they will in turn fear him. So if you're new again to the series, what is exactly fearing God, the fear of the Lord, etc.? You'll see those kind of variations of the, of, the, of the phrasing. Well, this is referenced all throughout Ecclesiastes. Um, in verse 12, it's referencing in, in 5, 7, chapter 5, verse 7. Of course, at the end of the book in uh, chapter 12, there's verse 13, God is the one you must fear, and then later, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And I've read so many theologians and talked to so many Christians about what is actually the meaning of this, and I don't think there's actually one go-to answer, but rather phrases and words passed down to us have described what the Bible means by the phrase, fear of the Lord. It, it's basically a reverence and submission to God and his ways. It's a worshipful obedience. It's a heart that seeks to be devoted only to God. It's a deep familial trust and awe of God. I, I am yours. You are mine. I want to live for you. That, that's basically the overall picture and the sentiment of fearing the Lord. It's not this half 
hard-heartedness. It's not just this religiosity. It's not just being moral. It's just saying, God, you are, you are my only God, and I will seek to follow you all my days. And that reminds us of the overall gist of Ecclesiastes, fearing and trusting in the Lord in the midst of a confusing, fallen world. This is what Solomon is trying to talk about in these 12 chapters. And so it will be well with those who fear God, verse 12. Even if life on earth is full of tragedy and hardship, I was enjoying the, the lyrics and the songs that we were singing earlier this morning that were pointing to this very concept. Many of us are aware of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. We sung it earlier today. I requested it because I knew I was preaching on this passage. Probably less, though, are aware of the backdrop to the hymn. I saw a wonderful play uh, several years ago from Westminster School on this, but when I was reading, as I was preparing this, I was like, whoa, there's, there's actually a little bit more that maybe I missed that I didn't know. Horatio G. Spafford, in the late 1800s, was a businessman in Chicago. He was a father of five children, one of them tragically lost at a young age to pneumonia. And on top of that, I think in the same year, his business was bur burned down by the great Chicago fire that he was uh, eventually able to rebuild. But a couple years later, Spafford's wife, Anna, and their four daughters were headed to Europe Horatio was going to join them a little bit later because he had some work to attend to. But tragically, after colliding with another ship, the ship went down and all four daughters perished. His wife, Anna, miraculously survived and, he, and she sent a telegram to Horatio, of course, in despair and just put, saved, alone. And so while a torn Horatio rushed onto the next ship to get to her across the Atlantic, while he was traveling there, can you imagine that long journey, just thinking about what has happened? He wrote the words that we sung today, it is well with my soul, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul, it is well with my soul, it is well. It is well with my soul. And so as they tried to pick up the pieces, the Lord then later blessed them with three more children. And they lived out their lives in Jerusalem where he is buried today. Well, we can imagine that Horatio could write these words as he journeyed over the dark ocean of the Atlantic because he was resolutely trusting in the Lord. He had the fear of the Lord in him. Again, this has nothing to do with, well, how righteous and moral was he when this was happening? No, 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 no. He knew that his life was entrusted to the God who could save him. He had the fear of the Lord. Only because God had transformed his soul and his heart and able to do so, to fear the Lord. To look to God who is in control over all things and not one's firm grip on life after the Chicago fire perhaps he said I'm going to grip tighter and I'm going to rebuild this business I'm going to take care he might say I'm going to take care of my family and the harder that I squeeze the stronger the grip I'm going to make it through but instead it seems like Horatio's view of life was to trust in the one who is completely in control let me just remind you, Horatio wrote these words before the Lord blessed them with more children. 
And so when he said, it is well, he was most likely saying, above and greater than any blessing or happiness here on earth, to be a child of God and secured for eternity with my Savior through faith, that's the most precious and important thing anyone could ever possess and behold. Again, we, we sang about such things earlier. And so I think he would wholeheartedly agree with Ecclesiastes, for those who fear God, it indeed will be well. But let's face this, perhaps you've been a Christian for many years or decades, or perhaps you're on the fence right now and you're just coming for the first time to a Christian service. At, at first glance, this doesn't seem fair. Life doesn't seem fair. Shouldn't the wicked perish and have horrible tragedies like the Spaffords went through. And then those who are pursuing righteousness and uh, pursuing life in faith, in trust, in the grace of God every day, shouldn't, for those people, everything go smooth and right? That's what seems fair to me. And so Solomon laments this part too in our next point and heading, the vanity of fairness, verse 14, if you look at your Bibles. The second heading, the thought is the vanity of fairness. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Or if you're having a hard time kind of tracking what he's trying to say there, the NIV translates it, the righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. Now, of course, my heading, the vanity of fairness, is not to be uh, misunderstood as fairness is absurd or meaningless, but fairness in this life and in this world can be vanity, confusing, perplexing, frustrating. And when things don't seem fair, our minds wander into thinking, this is all meaninglessness. Perhaps you might think you'd find in his library the modern book titles, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, or Why Good Things Happen to Bad People. I'm not recommending those books. I've never read those books, but I know those are popular titles. But at least those titles bear what Solomon was conflicted over in a topsy-turvy -tur fallen world that we live in. But as he starts at the start of verse 14, there is definitely is a vanity, an absurdity, that takes place on earth because verse 14 happens all the time through every century through every culture and every part of the world if you interview people if you read history books from every nation and every culture for thousands of years you will see instances of verse 14 and people throwing up their arms and saying vanity so he makes this emphatic point by book ending look at verse 14 he book ends this with the phrase vanity and then includes this inverted parallelism, contrasting what happens with the righteous with what happens to the wicked. Things in this world just don't seem to end up being fair. Let me just spend a little bit of time here. Let's fast forward, friends. Let's fast forward a thousand years later after Solomon. Someone from Solomon's line will undergo one of the most excruciating and unjust deaths in the history of the world. Jesus of Nazareth who lived a perfect, obedient life, who never sinned, not even once, was erroneously prosecuted, tried, and eventually crucified. 
who Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. We were talking earlier about honorable versus dishonorable burials. Jesus did indeed, Psalm, uh, Isaiah 53, 9, he did die with the wicked on the cross with thieves to his left, to his right, the most dishonorable way to die in this crucifixion form. But he was buried in the rich tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a complete fulfillment of Isaiah 53.9. But the most important aspect of Jesus' death was what happened on the cross. Let's go back to Isaiah in verse 4 through 6 in chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was esteemed, uh, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Listen to this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wait a second. Wait, wait a second. How is that fair? We get healed, we get peace, we get forgiveness. And in our stead, Robin, you're saying Christ gets crushed and credited our transgressions and then we get credited his perfect righteousness if we truly believe? Oh, that sounds amazing for us who believe, but how in the world is that fair? The only way to remedy a sinful Rebellion and the blackened heart of death was Christ himself taking that wrathful verdict of hell in our stead. And he experienced, of course, hell on the cross so that we could have peace and reconciliation and, yes, redemption. It's almost like the world in its topsy-turviness set up our minds to even comprehend this divine concept of grace in the great exchange. Are you following with that? Because we're so used to verse 14 being so backwards, that is actually giving us context for believing in that otherworldly act of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. This unmerited favor, I don't deserve this, that we get what we can never earn or deserve. Christ did what we could never do for ourselves. Indeed, when we look at our fallen world, the concept of fairness is vanity. But when we look from the perspective of God, this theme turned out to be the way Christ would make all things new in himself. The just for the unjust. We, the wretched sinners, miraculously turn to saints. Oh, how could Solomon realize that what he was seeing with his frustrated vantage point would become one of the greatest pictures of what Christ, the eternal king, was going to do for us. Oh, if we, could if we could only have what is fair, we would all deserve hell. A lot of people who are, you know, just trying to question kind of our theology and how we read the scriptures and about uh, total depravity and, um, you know, unconditional election, et cetera, et cetera, it always goes back to, well, that's not fair. But if you rewind the clock in history all the way in the fall, oh, it would be fair if we were all sent 
to hell. Through Adam, oh, we've all are rebels. Through the first Adam, we are all rebels. We all deserve damnation. Yet for God to even save one, two, three, four, or five, or the hundred or so here today, oh, that's grace. That flips everything upside down. That should be illogical to us. But that should ultimately lead us to praise. That should ultimately lead us to, what does he say next? Joy. From the vanity of all things, we come to the value of joy. That's our third thought, third heading here, and concluding in verse 15. The value of joy. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Solomon is an interesting writer. He's pretty dark. And all of a sudden, this is the fifth time in Ecclesiastes that he brings up this enjoyment kind of concept. He's going to do it again, I think, in a, couple, uh, uh, a little bit later and then towards the end of Ecclesiastes. He's like, let me just give you a lot of bad news. I'm going to give you a lot of bad news, and then here's joy. He's like, wait, what? Uh, let, no, okay, you didn't get it. Let, let me give you a lot of bad news and, and, and the vanity of life, and then let me give you, let me commend you to joy. Maybe out of weariness, our author wants to end this passage with some cheer, cheerfulness. Perhaps he's simply resigned to the unknowable things of life under the sun, things that even wisdom can't solve or, eat or make understandable. And so he's saying, what should we do? Oh, we should concentrate on the concept of joy. Joy. Instead of what some scholars call Solomon's once in a while carpe diem moment, seize the day, I think it's more like count your blessings. It's in, in all the darkness. Oh, at the end of the day, would you count your blessings and be joyful? Not because life is just good, but because of who you are in God. J.R.R. Tolkien once wrote, it's not a bad thing to celebrate a simple life. It's not a bad thing to celebrate a simple life. Instead of figuring out and solving every existential crisis out there, Solomon is saying, step back, enjoy your blessings from God, count your blessings, and be commended towards joy a gladness in your heart that you belong to the Lord and that you possess the God-given gift of a relationship with him, a God-fearing one. It will be well with those who fear the Lord. And of course, with the advent of Christ, oh, and a union to the Son, Jesus our Savior, that has this unlimited supply of joy in store for us. 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy what is inexpressible and filled with glory. What everyone is saying is that joy is not in mere circumstances, but joy is found in the union to the Son, our Master, our Lord, Jesus. Do, do you, are you hearing that? Joy is not when everything is just lined up right. Your job is great. Your family is great. Your children are great. Your social circuits are great. The one you voted for was elected <laughs> too soon. You know, just et cetera, et cetera. Everything is lined up. My favorite team, the Chicago Bears, won the Super Bowl. Like, everything is good. Now, that's not going to happen. Now, now, 
Now I can, yes, verse 15, joy, commend me to joy, Solomon. I'm ready. I've been ready for a thousand years. I'm ready to do joy. That's not what the Bible says. It's joy despite the circumstances. It's joy because of the union to God that we have through the Son. And so in contrast then to our first two headings, joy is not vanity. Joy is not absurd. Joy is not incomprehensible. Rather, joy is comprehensible because it's a gift from God. I'd love to hear your stories about a time where life was just upside down and still, strangely enough, when you're going to bed, you had a peace, you had a joy. That's a gift from God. There's already a lot of applications embedded so far, but perhaps let me just conclude with these short application thoughts to take the Sunday sermon into the heart of the week. As the title says, for those who fear God, for those who fear God, don't be overly consumed with those who do evil. Koheleth is saying, don't worry about the balance of things in life. Rather, justice prevails after life for all. Judgment to those who trust in evil, but life for those who trust in God and fear him. Don't be overly consumed with those who do evil. Secondly, don't be overly consumed with the world's view of fairness. Don't be overly consumed with the world's view of fairness. Life will continually seem unfair and unjust. And what I'm not saying is don't, don't stand idle when your neighbor is attacked or is the victim of injustice. But also realize the fallen world will never be fair until the return of our king. When all things will be made new, when the curse is reversed and the new heavens and the new earth will shine forth. Don't be overly consumed with the world's view of fairness. Number three, don't be overly consumed with death. It is good to remind ourselves of where we're going if we belong to Jesus. But don't be overly consumed with death. Rather, be commended toward joy in the time you have here on earth. With the ordinary means of God's grace in your life and in the life of the church, with the blessings of what you can share with others in food, drink, and joy, with the, the ability to partake in Holy Communion together in a moment, oh, live in that moment. Because God has your timeline all worked out, so there's no need to worry about the length of time left and to super obsess over that, even though that's difficult. Rather, count your blessings and be thankful that it will be well with you in the end. And so this segues into the next encouragement. Trust in God's ultimate plan for you and for his people. Trust in God's ultimate plan for you and his people in the here and now and the life after. So what he's saying is trust and, and, and the fear of God go hand in hand. Oh, how the Lord loves when his children trust him and rely on him. Through the finished work of his son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, trust in God's plan and timing, brothers and sisters. And therefore, lastly, rejoice, we say again, as Paul wrote. Rejoice, we say again. Rejoice in what is yours in Christ. So, do you believe that it will be well with your soul? And I don't take that question for granted. Um, I don't assume everyone is just ready to belt that out in song. I don't assume that everyone is just ready to say this when life is so difficult for you right now. 
Perhaps some of us are even scared to utter those words, and I get that. But even if you're not ready to say, it is well with my soul, or it's going to be well with those who fear the Lord, let me just encourage you and invite you to open up your lives to others here. This is why we have a church body. This is, this is not just a, a sermon recording to listen to. This is, we're part of a church, a body of Christ. And I invite you to open up your lives to others so that we can all together help each other on this journey, to be a shoulder to help bear your burdens, to be a helping hand in time of doubt and frustration, to be one who can pray with you in the dark nights of your soul. I think so many of us, we, we just say, well, I'm going to church on Sunday at Westminster 2700 Highland Avenue, and, and I just got to make sure that I'm all together. I'm all put together, and yes, it is well with my soul. And then you leave to the parking lot, just dejected, borderline in despair, not able to say that to anybody else. Friends, the, the, all of us here understand the ups and downs of life and in the ups and downs of our own faith. So allow us to do what scripture says, to bear each other's burdens. And let's pray for one another, even right now in a moment, that we can all confidently get to that grace-driven point to say, oh, indeed, it is well with my soul. It will be well with those who fear the Lord. When I, and I'm really careful not to get choked up here, when I visited with Pat Wallenberg, let me just speed through this so I don't get emotional. But, um, oh, just for, I don't know, half an hour, even though I don't remember hearing the phrase, it, it is well, everything she said, despite what a frightening diagnosis, was basically, Robin, it is well. It is well with my soul. Let's go to the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you that life under the sun, even though life under the sun can be so frustrating, perplexing, um, that we, we can run back to your word that directs us to all the beautiful things you have done for us through the Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for hope and light amidst darkness. Thank you that we don't have to be left alone in our own frustrations and confusion, but that your word directs us again, just like Psalm 73 was pointing us to the lamenting, but also to the praising at the end, to the realization that our refuge is in you in the light of such darkness. So thank you, God, for this time. Prepare our hearts for communion. Uh, may we be commended to joy and to rejoice over the, the broken body of Jesus and the blood shed for us so that we can forever say it is well with our souls, that we will be with you face to face someday. But thank you, God, for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name.